millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's the second time it's gone off. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. 63 years on from Roger Bannister running his four-minute mile, another great athlete embarked on his own attempt to break a supposedly unbreakable barrier in distance running this weekend. Some criticise it as a tacky publicity stunt, Ken. Others hail that Murph has an inspirational feat of human endurance. Whatever way you look at it, there's no denying the man's greatness. And I'm <laughs> Sorry, Owen. Yeah, go on. Yeah. I'm delighted to report that Richie Sadler was successful in his bid to break the 25-minute barrier for the 5,000 metres at the inaugural St. Benilda's Ross 5K on Friday night. Uh, we knew what was coming, and yet it was... St- well, we didn't know exactly what was coming, but I did know for sure that you weren't talking about Elliot. Kip Joe, Joe gave yeah. uh, Well I will talk about break that Break the two hour marathon So 24 right. minutes I'm sure we all want to know How Richie did Yeah 20, He ran He ran 5 kilometres In 24 minutes No 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 I hadn't finished 24 minutes 42 seconds Ah uh, yes. 42.75 seconds Good enough for a top 50 finish In his debut at the event Oh no it wasn't his debut Actually I think he might have Run another one But And was there anyone else I know running in this Ross That Benilis, you know Ross Benilis? Uh, Not uh, no, was it? Should you there be? One, were you? Oh, sorry, running I was running. I was <laughs> oh, thinking, you were running. I was thinking Shane Ross was there. Senator Shane Ross. Oh no, read, Ross! I was referring I to say, Ross. The race, not Ross. Jesus, Shane yeah. Ross. Tell me, how did you do yourself? Uh, well, I ran the ten k. <gasps> oh, do you have a five k split? Uh, I could find it. Mm, let's find that. There's a moment here. here you, take as uh, take as long as you need. I mean, my, I've, when I heard that Richie was racing this, my first thought was for his well-being. Yeah. So I mean, I haven't heard that. He's permanently crippled around things, so I presume he's okay. No, he's okay, but he was feeling good directly afterwards. So, so, so uh, it's usually the morning after that yeah. the... So, so Richie was 24 minutes, 42 seconds, 0.75? 24, 40, 24, 45. 24, 45, okay. And, yeah. what, what and that's for you, on? Well, I ran the 10K. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, split, but the split... No. I don't have a 5K split. I've got a 10K time. Well, what's your 10K time? 42 minutes. <gasps> oh, you're amazing. Oh, 42 minutes, which means, at, uh, like... At an absolute minimum, you would have had to do twenty-one minute split. I think it was it was around twenty-one thirty or so. I was putting a split there. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Pretty impressive. Congratulations, Owen. You feeling pretty good about yourself there? 
I mean, if if everyone could just see the shit eating grin that uh, McDevitt has on his well, face. Well, I did. Well, right I well, I, well, I did have a little battle in the latter latter stages with a former teacher. Ah, oh. did so, you win that battle? Well, I had to. I mean, I, I just had to. How yeah. how many years? Losing was age was he was quite young. He would have come in. He would have come in and started teaching very much towards maybe when I was in fifth year. He's actually. He didn't teach me, but he's my Gaelic football coach for a couple of years. Okay. So I really couldn't, I couldn't afford to lose that one. Because he would have dropped you a lot. Yeah, he would have chosen <laughs> believe you. Believe yeah, it or not, Kieran, yeah, he yeah. played me in midfield one day. You've seen me playing Gaelic football. Mid- wow. Midfield, not exactly playing to... I've seen you, st- I've, I've seen you walking around. I mean, that's enough for me you to see know me, that you're uh, not a ca- casually brushed off the ball by anyone mm. with any remote bit of physical strength. Oh, but no. uh, oh. he, yeah, I think he saw me as a, more of as a running midfielder than... I would describe uh, this, this more, of Terry, more of Terry McDermott than uh, <laughs> Victor Wanyama. Didn't quite work out, though. Last He's an innovator, I would say, this, yeah. this coach. Meanwhile, over in Monza, a certain sportswear giant was pulling out all the stops to try to get the Olympic marathon champion to run a sub-two-hour marathon. You may remember this sportswear giant from this ad in 2001. This is my body, and I can do whatever I want to it. I can push it, study it, tweak it, listen to it. Everybody wants to know what I'm on. What am I on? I'm on my bike, busting my ass six hours a day. What are you on? <laughs> so, it turned out Lance was on a little more than that. He was on his bike, busting. He's, technically, he was correct in what he said yeah. there. I guess when you yeah. look at it, he was busting about six hours a day. No suggestions that Elliot Kipchoge of Kenya was using similar means to pump up his chances on Saturday. But he did have various other advantages to draw upon. If you haven't been following this one, he was going for this record in a quite an artificial environment you could say they were a on a racetrack a controlled environment yes it's a racetrack for one thing Formula 1 racetrack which meant no sharp turns lovely smooth asphalt surface water vapour pressure I saw as an advantage not quite sure what that means but apparently it's good for reducing sweating or at least reducing the effects of sweating there's no wind there's a lot of trees blocking the wind he had pace setters who were allowed to drop in and out of the race so rather than I mean, there are often pace setters for marathons, but they'll eventually have to drop out after, say, 10, 15 miles because they're going too fast for their own abilities. In this case, you could drop in, drop out, drop in. Uh, he was able to use them as windbreakers. A lot of other stuff, more uh, high-tech stuff as well, like laser-projected green line coming, showing him the pace that he needed to run. And last but not least, the controversial new Zoom. This is what we're all here for, everybody. The new Zoom Vaporfly Elite Shoes. Which apparently use a special... And these are available to buy now. They are, well, they very soon will be, Kieran, <laughs> yes. Uh, a slightly toned-down version for the casual runner, such as myself and Richie Sadler. But okay, you can get the yeah. top-notch ones if you're an elite an elite runner. So it's I'm a- not going to buy them now. He didn't do it, so the hell with that. That's, that's the, the double-edged sword uh, effect of this, surely, isn't it? He doesn't run two hours, the runners are shy. <laughs> Who'd buy them? This, uh, these things have carbon fibre plate, uh, plates in the soles, which apparently make runners 4% more efficient, or make these more 4% more efficient than their previous fast marathon shoe. It boosts its running economy, and really that's it. So should we be buying into this attempt at breaking down barriers, considering it really amounts to a very elaborate ad for a runner? I don't know, Ken. I'm, I'm conflicted. I am both... I refuse to be taken in by the marketing. And yet you can't help being can't taken help, in. Can't help, but, can't help but be fascinated as to whether or not he was going to do it. Well, that's your love of running, out. And he got close. When you've got a passionate love for a sport like yourself, mm. uh, you end up developing an incredibly high tolerance to uh, marketing. Mm. Hence, I just mentioned the name of the product right there. I've really managed to... It's okay. I've, I've already forgotten the name of the product. What's Mercurial the, Superfly, something really. No, they're Ronaldo's boots. Mercurial. Oh, okay. uh, what's four percent better than? What's four percent of? What did you run? Forty-two. Forty-two twenty-two. Mm. 
Not 30. That's four and a half minutes. You could have knocked four and a bit minutes off your ten. Uh, four and time. a bit minutes isn't four percent of. It's about ten percent. Sorry, that's ten percent. Ten percent. Yeah. Sorry, apologies. You can do the maths and come back to me off air about it. Yeah, maybe, maybe I will do that. On so maybe I will do that. This is about pushing the limits of human performance. It is a moonshot, says Matt Nurse, vice president of the Nike Sports Research Lab. You can do all the work in the world, and when you get the spaceship into orbit, you don't know whether it will land on the moon. But one of Nike's goals is to take on missions with a risk of failure. So it didn't quite land on the moon in this case. Only twenty-five seconds short of it, though, and we're going to be talking to the brilliant David Epstein about all this in just a little while. All right, as today is a Monday, this show is available to non-members and fully signed up, officially ratified second captains members alike. I don't like even dividing you like that or putting labels on you. Frankly, there's enough of that going on in the world outside this podcast. But really, there's only one way to come together once again and fully unite. And that is for those of you who have not yet put your faith in the World Service to get yourselves involved so that you don't miss all this good stuff. The best man I ever saw for to knock back a baby power. I don't mean to say now that he was a drunkard or anything like that, but oh, it's a goal, I think. Oh, well saved, sir. Baby power was gone. I saw him actually do it. They decriminalise domestic violence unless in cases of serious injury or a repeat offence. So you get one free go. The point about this is, is it wrong to beat your wife? Or isn't it? Quite clearly. It is. Yes. Is it? It's it is it anyone? Is it wrong? Is it wrong to discriminate against gay people? Or isn't it? Of course, it's wrong to discriminate against anyone. I publish stuff. You know, my job is to publish stuff. Do you ever have qualms then about about? Of course. No, of course I have qualms about living in Russia. Like I'm bloody qualms about no, living that, in that, Ireland, no. for example, or whatever. You know what I mean? Or about working for a state organisation or whatever. Of course. Best known, I suppose, under his pen name of uh, Carberry. Uh, well known to put away a baby power, according to the clip we heard uh, earlier there. Not, not that he has any issues. Yeah, I think our, our speaker was quite clear on that. There you are. A couple of extracts there from episode 845, GA on the radio, and episode number 848, The Russian Point of View. That's the latest Kennedy political podcast, which featured a brilliant, challenging conversation between Ivor Crotty of RT, Russia Today, formerly known as Russia Today, and the Kennedy political podcast's own Kennedy here. We also had a great chat last week with Declan Murphy, the jockey who lost four and a half years of memory in a fall in 1994 that's just all in the last week alone thanks so much for all our I should say to all our wonderful World Service members for giving us a chance to make those shows in the first place and for all the nice texts and emails that have been flowing in in the last few months Ken's fascination with Lee Bowyer seems a particularly strong source of interaction for (laughs) some bizarre reason at the moment to become a World Service member for a five or a month plus VAT and get the gang back together again go to secondcaptains.com and join us for a daily completely independent commercial free broadcasting the GA Championship Murph kicked off at the weekend we're going to be talking to one of the combatants later on yeah Charlie Harrison who uh, if you even the most casual of observers of the kind of football championship over the last 10 years will know Charlie Harrison is one of the best defenders uh, in that competition uh, since the turn of the millennium actually he's a brilliant player and it's weird these things happen sometimes that uh, when you're Guys like that, who he's only won one provincial medal, uh, but Galway Mayo Roscommon supporters would have seen him year in, year out, and he's just an exceptional footballer. Uh, 35 years old now, uh, came back from a cruciate knee injury on uh, when was that, 2015, I think. Um, yeah, just an extraordinarily good uh, defender, and they needed him and Adrian Marin and Mark Brenny and all of their experienced heads last night because at around quarter past nine last night. You, if you were on Twitter, you would have seen that New York had taken the lead mm. in Gaelic Park in the Bronx against Sligo in the Connacht uh, chapter preliminary round game. 
and after a week where everyone was saying, you know, New York, not that bad. There was four, a lot of that. That was the sense I was getting. People yeah, were, 14, and I'm not sure if any, everyone in Sligo was that happy with the fact that they were... Yes, people were... Well, it's, it's not so much that anyone was writing Sligo off. It was more that they were giving New York a really good chance of winning this game. 14 of the New York players had played inter-county football at some stage for their uh, counties back here in Ireland. Uh, so everyone was kind of talking up Sligo's chances. And when they went a point ahead in what looked like a brilliant atmosphere uh, with 19 minutes to go, that was they were asking some serious questions. But uh, Charlie Harrison et al. managed to pull it out of the fire. Ended up winning the game by eight points. But uh, yeah, not without a bit of a struggle. On Saturday morning at the Monza Formula 1 track in Italy, Elliot Kipchoge of Kenya, the Olympic champion, came in in 25 seconds of breaking the... Well, what many believe is an unbreakable mark two hours for the marathon now this depends on your point of view how you're going to look at this it was either a brave attempt to test the limits of human endurance as we mentioned or a cynical publicity stunt designed to sell you a pair of running shoes that may or may not be any better than the pair that you currently plot around in David Epstein has explored some of these themes of the limits of human endurance in his brilliant book The Sports Gene he's also investigated some of the less ethical methods of achieving this sort of greatness when he investigated Alberto Salazar's work at the Nike Oregon Project for ProPublica. David, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. What side of the debate did you fall on over the weekend? Were you were you glued to it as a heroic athletic endeavour or put off a little bit by the naked cynicism around the marketing of the event? <laughs> I, I wouldn't put myself entirely in either camp. I mean, I was, I was well aware from, from the get-go that it was going to be a, a marketing documentary. Um, so, so that didn't surprise me. I sort of got that out of, out of the way early on. At the same time, I didn't, uh, you know, I think sports are contrivances with agreed upon rules. And if you're not following those agreed upon rules, then you're, then you're not really making a world record attempt. So I, I never sort of considered it, uh, pushing human boundaries because basically there are a number of factors, um, that are sort of hard to quantify how much they really added to the effort. So we know we could have someone run a two hour marathon if we put them on a subtle, downhill for the entire time mm. right so the question i think for nike was how how many of the normal boundaries can they eliminate without making it look like a farce basically um and so for my mind i think it was probably around a world record uh, effort performance with some of the normal barriers just circumvented what okay of, of some of the circumvention that was in play here what was the most significant do you think was it the was it the pace setters that were allowed to drop in and out of the race was it just the fact of the venue that they were on this motor racing track without having to with no sharp turns and with lovely smooth asphalt which you never really get on the roads yeah i i think well so of the of the ones that would not be allowed for a record attempt i yeah. think the pace setters was a big one um because that allowed pace setters to go the entire way um, and, and to maintain that perfect sort of arrowhead formation. Normally, pace setters have to start from the start of the race, which means the winner doesn't typically end um, with pace setters. If anything, there's usually one other person who's kind of beside them or near them. So I think that was a big one. I also think I, I hadn't considered this before the race, but the Tesla, uh, the car, the pace car was much closer to them than normal. I'm not sure if that was uh, illegal or not, although it certainly wouldn't be that close to normal race. And it had that enormous clock. Um, that the viewers often see, but was way much larger than the runners needed to see. So I'm assuming they added that as a as a windshield. Um, so I think the I think the pace setters for sure, and I think they, also the delivery of the drinks or carbohydrate mixes on the bikes, while not as important as the pace setters, meant that all those every time they do that in a normal race, they veer to the side of the road to pick those up. Sometimes slow down a little. So that that might save you, you know, a second 
um, 15 times during the race, for example. But I think that the pace setters and the car with that gigantic clock were were the biggest uh, biggest differences. The shoes, of course, are kind of a black box. So I, I think that might have added a little bit, but it's hard to say how much. What do you mean it's hard to say how much? 4% is what the Nike people tell us, David. So it must be so. Well, it can't, it can't be because he definitely would have run under two hours if it was 4%. Um, so... I don't know where they maybe they got that four percent on a on a treadmill. You know, it's a different surface you're running on, or maybe one runner got four percent in some. You know, if they tested it on a non-elite, you often see uh, larger percent changes than you would see for an elite. But if it was if it was four percent, then he would have broken two hours. So it's not four percent. I saw this being compared with Justin Gatlin going on a Japanese game show a while back. He went on and he ran something like nine point four five seconds for the hundred meters with the slight advantage of an industrial-sized fan at his back blowing him all the way there. <laughs> Would you subscribe to that comparison? Yeah, I mean, again, that's sort of, I think Nike's, I think part of the scientific challenge and what was interesting, actually, is, yes, it is like that, but they wanted to make it feel as little like that as possible, mm. basically. So how do you do that? I mean, the because the, yeah, I, I think of, in mentioning Gatlin, I think of in, you know, a couple years ago, maybe it was 2011 or something like that, um, in Boston, there was uh, at the time a big world record of about 203, and people were saying, "Wow, this is even more amazing because Boston is known as a hard course." But there was Boston is a straight course, and there happened to be like a gale force wind all in the perfect direction that day, and that's why Boston is ineligible for a record. So some of the American commentators were saying, "Oh, these these bean counting geeks, you know, they they don't believe in the." Uh, the human heart, they don't think it's a record just because there was some wind that day. But that's exactly why you're not allowed to have a straight course, so that a wind can't blow you in that direction for the entire course. And they ran five minutes faster than they ran the next year when there wasn't a wind. And so I think the idea that those things don't matter, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, they do for sure. And so I, I think it was a little bit, a little bit like that, where it's very impressive um, and he ran faster than I had predicted. Uh, I was in the runner's world sort of prediction, even though you can't know because, again, because these black boxes. So it's very impressive and very neat to see. And I think he's certainly the best marathoner that's ever lived. But, um, you know, it's it's an industrial fan in the shape of something other than an industrial fan. Is there any way of conveying to the rest of us how quickly he was running, the sort of pace that he was running at? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the people that don't, you know, haven't ever run at that speed or don't run a marathon. It sort of looks like, like guys just running at a camera or, or men and women just running at a camera. And it's really hard to understand that. Like I, I was a national level middle distance runner in the U.S., so I think I have a good sense of that pace. He's running about 434-mile uh, pace. And I think if I had to guess, if most people sprinted, like if you just took an average you know person out of their office and had them sprint as fast as they could, um, like really an all-out effort. I think most people would probably make it for about um, 20 seconds, maybe, um, <laughs> g- give or take. You know, people who have some running experience would, would make it longer. But, I mean, any one of his miles would win most, like, uh, you know, not, not all, but would win, like, the average high school mile track meet in the United States. So any one of his miles picked from the 26.2 would win the race. Yeah, I did see you tweeting a link to a Wired.com video in which they tried exactly <laughs> that. They got some of their runners in their running club to have a go at this. And a couple of these were incredibly fit-looking people. I'd say they're pretty decent club-level runners. And, yeah, I think maybe one or two of them got over a minute, but that was about the extent of it. Yeah, I mean, if people remember, I don't know, in, in the U.S., we have to run the mile. I know most places 
don't care about the mile, but we have to run the mile like in gym class when you're a kid as as part of some fitness test. Um, and so people have a good comparison here to think about what they what they ran. You know, probably they ran eight minutes or whatever it is they ran. It, it's it really is uh, sprinting speed for normal people. And a, a neat video if people want to see it is if you go if you go on YouTube and type in the American marathoner Ryan Hall and subway and marathon there's a video where one year when he was the best american marathoner um asics put up a video board in the new york city subway for the new york marathon where it would he would have him it would have a countdown and then him running at his average marathon pace and people could line up next to it get ready for the countdown and then try to run next to his him on the video um you know in some cases people don't he's he's they're trying to sprint along with the thing sometimes kids and you know, by five meters, he's blowing them away, basically. So what are the, at that sort of level of running then, what are the the type of things that w- would be within the rules that would be considered okay by the IAAF? What are the kind of improvements that can be made by these runners, almost all of whom are East African now, so they have whatever genetic advantages, whatever uh, advantages based on, on their upbringing that they bring into top-level running? What more can they do to go faster and to get down to these sort of times without all the advantages we saw the other day? Well, I, I think, I think there are, so the last, I think six world records have all been set at Berlin, which tells you, you know, that we're really in the period of sort of diminishing returns because for a while it was, you could set a record at Chicago or London or Berlin or, you know, Dubai, maybe you still can, but the fact that it's been limited down to Berlin where they have these huge pacing walls uh, tells me that those little advantages are getting more and more important, which is why you know Berlin seems to be the only place that it happens. But I think some other marathons could, like London is a pretty fast marathon, except, I mean, it's a very fast marathon, except it also has a lot of fairly tight curves. And, and you know, for, for the normal marathoner who's running four hours, those curves don't matter. But for, for guys that are running four uh, mile pace, those curves matter a lot. They really have to slow down and then speed back up. So I think you could have courses with uh, softer curves, get rid of those curves. You could have some more like the loop kind of uh, construction so that guys can get a better sense of the pacing. You're already allowed these big walls of pace setters. So if if some marathon shelled out maybe a little more money to get some of the best runners in the world instead of competing the marathon themselves to be the pace setter so they could go longer in the race i think that could make a potentially big difference from the, the point of view of the runners though themselves what physiologically training wise oh. form wise oh, yeah. is there any way that, that they, they can get down there well you know that that's a i mean i think part of the part of it is just the more the more people we get the more chances there are right so like they're even in in and this Elite running physiology isn't unique to the Kalenjin people of Kenya. It's just that it's it's more common in there, and they've also developed a, a running culture. That said, there's still very few people training there. I mean, there are way, way more people, given because of our college running system, there are way more people training competitively and running in the U.S. than probably the rest of the world combined because we have 40,000 college runners in their 20s. But in, and in Kenya, it's like hundreds of people who are training really, really seriously. And so, one, I think we there's still a lot of room left to search, right? I don't think we've found uh, these unique physiological specimen, right? Like, the only reason that Usain Bolt is a track runner is because he was born in Jamaica. If he'd been born anywhere but about three different countries, he never would have even been a track runner. Mm. So I think, I think global search is probably still the best way we have to go. 
But in most cases, too, I think for the best runners who are living in the countryside of Kenya and sometimes Ethiopia, they really don't have much access to good sports medicine, which sounds crazy because they're winning these races, but sometimes they'll have tiny injuries and miss huge amounts of training. So I think um, getting uh, you know, things like basic strength training to some of those athletes, basic but consistent sports medicine, uh, maybe playing with their altitude regimen a little bit, um, I think I think you could get some little gains out of that, but I think the biggest gains will just be continuing to um, continuing to search the gene pool a little bit. David, a lot of people found this whole venture a little bit crass, really, as as we've alluded to a couple of times. Uh, quite a clear, quite an almost uh, transparent sort of, well, not necessarily deliberately transparent, but a, a marketing ploy, which is what it was. I, I guess you just take take it or leave it in that way. You don't have to engage with it necessarily. So I don't know if that's such a big deal, but I did find one element of it to be to be quite difficult to get my head around, and that is just the way that we view distance running or any athletics, unfortunately, at the moment and the questions around how the top athletes really do get down to crazy times close to two hours. I mean, Nike were asked about this. They were asked about drug testing procedures and they didn't say much. They just said that they that athletes had been tested regularly according to standard IAAF protocols. But nothing else about this race had anything to do with IAAF protocols. It seems like a bit of an easy get out from Nike's point of view when if they really wanted to make a statement here, they could have said from the start, we're going to put these guys through the most rigorous drug testing procedures you've ever seen. I, I agree. And, and I wonder, and it also, it almost seems crazy not to, because in some ways I felt like this event, you know, from a marketing perspective was sort of a no lose. Like it comes off as a little crass, but like for the most part, um, you know, a bunch of, like I was getting emails from people who don't even care about running and they're asking about the shoes and the, and the people mm-hmm. who are runners aren't going to not buy the shoes because they didn't like some of the marketing. So I think it's, it's basically a no lose from a marketing perspective, unless one of the guys fails a drug test, like in the near future or, or ever basically. Right. Yeah. If, if Kipchoge ever uh, fails a drug test, I think then it is a marketing fail. So you would have, I would think just from the perspective of sort of protecting their investment, they would go, all out and 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 maybe they contracted in you know if you, something about it so i'm, I'm kind of curious if maybe they did since they were since they're all talking about all of the you know blood tests and all these things they were taking like maybe they were looking um because how, that would be one of the first things i would think of if i was doing something like this like we have to void the contract if any of them fails and and make sure that they're you know that they're clean so and, and i think it would have been a good show for the sport because we know there are people who are um, pulling off great performances uh, that that are doping. You know, I think I think doping control is better than it ever was before because the biological passport is more effective than it was. Like we know, one of the reasons that um, Russian athletes had to kind of like pass their their urine samples through like holes in the wall in the drug testing lab is because they were surprised they were having trouble beating the biological passport. So I think there's some reason to think that things are a little bit better, but, but I absolutely agree. I, I think it would have been good all around just to make a, make a big show of really uh, doing extra testing on their own. Have Nike ever given satisfactory answers to you or about your work around the, the Salazar story at the, their project, the Nike Oregon project? Uh, I mean, Salazar himself um, issued a long response, which is online and, um, when you say satisfactory, I mean, he basically, if one were to go through that, um, 
story that I did with the BBC and and to go through Salazar's responses to it, he pretty much admits to all the facts. Um, he just contends that there are different reasons. So, for example, one of the things we reported was that in a Nike lab, he was testing on his son's um, testosterone cream to see how much it would take to trigger a positive test. And obviously, that is, that's actually not something that um, coaches or support personnel for athletes are supposed to do. Uh, and people can make their own conclusions about why they did, but he and a, and a team and a doctor that was working with the athletes said, well, it was actually for counter-sabotage. If someone were to rub testosterone cream on one of his athletes after the race, you know, and maybe Nike could come up with some kind of shirt they could put on afterward that would block that, you know, so he disputed the reasons, but he didn't really dispute the facts. And uh, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency is still looking into that stuff. Yeah, I just asked the question. Well, I saw it. there was a Fancy Bears leak saying that reporting that Nike were accused of hindering that investigation. They were making unreasonable demands for confidentiality. I don't know how much you can talk about that sort of thing at the moment if it's under USADA investigation. Yeah, no, that's I mean, I, I have, you know, that since that report has um, has been out and I have seen it. And uh, in, indeed, there, you know, the, the report um, says that. Nike and, and Salazar, one, one of the, you know, that they haven't turned over a lot of the stuff that they've been asked for, mm. basically. Yeah, the reason I bring this up is just that any, I would have thought any venture like this at the moment, if you're really trying to convince fans, has to ag- acknowledge the doping problem as and, the, and the, the whole issue of doping as part of the overall. And so it feels like Nike, look, I know people listening going, listen, why, why would they bother opening that can of worms there? a big sportswear company make a lot of money out of elite sport and I, I understand where people are coming from on that one but it, it does seem to me that I'd be very I would have been very slow to celebrate this two hour marathon to be honest without a little bit more transparency from Nike on that side of things yeah and again I, I really do wonder if they were actually looking at it and just didn't want to talk about it a lot because if they weren't then it just seems to me like a <laughs> like a terrible mistake from a potential marketing perspective um yeah, I agree. I, I think probably the calculation was, you know, all the people who follow the running world are, are pretty aware of this. And I think this was an attempt to um, get running and Nike in the news to people who don't really follow running and, and probably aren't as much sort mm-hmm. of up on um, what's going on in, in doping. You know, they know it's out there, but not really a lot of the specifics. And so why bring it up to them? That, that's my guess. I don't have any insight into Nike's uh, decision-making process, but that would be my guess. Just the last one, uh, David, that's on a point that Ross Tucker made about the athletes, what this takes out of an athlete, Kipchoge's attempt to go two hours. And we should say he made it a lot closer than the other than the other two competitors, also two yeah. of the best runners around. So there's no doubt, regardless of all the, the questions around the sport, of the guy's talent, but the point yeah. that Tucker was making was that you, you can't go to the well that often. There's only so much in an athlete like that and that any that he's really got to get to work now if he's going to make a further impact on the sport. Can you outline to us what is taken out? Because clearly it's a tough, incredibly tough sport. But how one race like that, one quick time like that can take so much out of an athlete. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. You know, and for most, for for... You know, in the last couple of decades, the the marathon's gotten a lot faster, and as the best runners have gone to the marathon when they're younger, you know, in the past it was seen as something you do when you lose your track speed. Every once in a while, we've seen someone break a record, whether uh, you know it's Patrick McCow or Dennis Cometo, and then you say, "Wow, this this guy's going to dominate for years," and they they struggle, if ever, to put together another effort like that. It's really hard to be consistent in the marathon, partly because the amount, the volume you have to do for training means you're so much more likely to get injured also. 
So for a million reasons, I think it's hard uh, for marathon runners to put together those great attempts. Not to mention, you have to you have to go through your training being injury free, and then you have to catch the day with the right weather. You know, with um, the right pacing, I'm basically on Berlin at the moment. So so many things have to line up. It's just unusual for that to happen. And these efforts, as they've been getting faster and faster, the runners have been doing less and less of them a year. So I think that's, you know, he's he's already done something that's uh, really unprecedented in winning, like I think seven of his eight marathons. And you'd expect that there aren't very many efforts like that left in the tank. Now, he's a, he's a special runner, no doubt about it. So maybe there are. But, boy, if I were him, I would get the rest he needs and then um, start planning for the next Berlin as if it's the last attempt he'll ever have at a, at a regulation world record. Hopefully it's not, but I think that, that it's, it's quite possible it will be. All right, David, I've seen it. has been great to talk to you today. I think we're going to have to get a treadmill into the office here and have a go at this pace. I'm, I'm thinking maybe a minute between total between five of us in the office is about as far as we get. Listen, great to talk to you, David. Thanks a million. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. He was about 12. <laughs> Everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What happened? It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. So how do you think you'd get on, guys, if we got that treadmill in here? 4.34. Mild pace. Not really a runaround. The average office worker... What did David say there? He thinks maybe 20 seconds or so. Well, then less than 20 seconds. <laughs> somewhere in the zero to 20 seconds. Yeah, somewhere in the middle of I, that. Actually, I, this, this I would like to see. Uh, why would you like to see that on? I mean, it's a treadmill. I it mean, would I, be hilarious. I'm more concerned about the damage I would do to my face when I fall over trying to keep up to this, quite frankly, unsustainable <laughs> no, pace for be, even 10 seconds. You would be signing a waiver before uh, embarking on this. I do feel more comfortable in the water, Owen, like a hippo or a manatee. <laughs> Uh, rather than trying to uh, spin my little legs as fast as they can go. If you didn't follow the Salazar story at the time, by the way, I know I might have just jumped in with that in the middle of the conversation. That was his legendary runner, amazing coach, Mo Farah's coach, among others, although Galen Rupp was the athlete in his charge who was at the centre of a lot of the research done, a lot of the brilliant reporting done by David Epstein. Essentially a load of top runners and other people who'd worked with Salazar came out and alleged that he experimented, experimented with testosterone and pressured athletes to use prescription medications they didn't need to get a performance enhancement, essentially. There's a lot, a, lot of, a lot of reading in that if you want to get stuck into it at, at any stage. I just thought it was kind of important to cover that part of it. It just seems naive to talk about this sort of stuff now without making reference to the questions that you have to ask over a sub-two-hour marathon or any other m- massive athletic feat. I was reading a lot of feverish uh, reportage of the the beetroot revolution in the lead up to this one. Apparently, uh, beetroots are quite a quite a mean way what, of beet- getting some nitrate into your system. No, seriously, and there was a, a lot of stuff about how the Kenyan athletes are so great because they, if they don't eat beetroot, they certainly eat a lot of spinach. Mm. And at this, and I don't doubt that good foods. I'm not saying there's no benefit of this, but it, it all seems a little bit the kind of conversation you might have had twenty years ago, thirty years ago, before mm. the eyes were opened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. <laughs> I think we I think we're all agreed that it uh top quality sport needs a little bit more than just 
beetroot. You know, I, I, I think the, the idea that you science, uh, uh, assign that level of importance to one tiny part of your diet. I had a Belgian waffle. Well, on the other hand, there is that. <laughs> well, that was a hotkey. I don't know if that would have even... That was so seamless, it might not have... I had a Belgian waffle. <laughs> I don't think any of those Kenyan... Self-satisfaction in Belgian waffles there. Yeah, well, I did have a Belgian waffle. I mean, it was at halftime with a GAA game, and I thought it was newsworthy. I'm sorry, okay, I'm sorry. The GA Championship got started yesterday in New York where the Sligo footballers were pushed all the way. Charlie Harrison, their full-back, joins us from New York. Was there any panic... Charlie, when they got ahead of you, they took the lead for the first time with less than 20 minutes to go. Yeah, well, I suppose there's, no matter who you're playing, when you go down uh, when you go down by a point with 20 minutes to go, there's always a little bit of panic. But uh, especially with the way things were built up by the media this year, it seemed to be more pressure piled on us than any other game that I've probably played in. Because uh, it's a really weird situation because we felt that nearly everybody wanted us to kind of lose. I don't know why that fe- felt that way, but... And maybe it was the romance of the of New York taking down a, a county side from home, uh, but yeah, no, we we kind of when that goal went in, we kind of just said to ourselves, uh, just take it a point at a time, and we knew we'd have the legs. Uh, number one, because of the of the national league that the reserve in the national league that we built up, and I suppose we had the smarts as well uh, to be able to pull out the win in the end. Yeah, it's a, an interesting dynamic you talk about, the mindset of playing a game where m- most people want you to lose. It's not like Sligo uh, yeah. have, have necessarily offended anybody, but there was a sense that, that the vast majority of people not just w- wanted New York to win, but maybe there was a feeling, and I know your manager, Noel Carew, felt it was actually disrespectful that maybe Sligo could be there for the taking for New York. Ah, yeah, listen, it was, it was a really weird... That was my third time to play in the Con Championship in New York. And I've never, uh, there was a media campaign that this was a really strong New York team uh, and they were out to get us. I don't know where this came from. Um, you know, there's always a little bit of pressure over here because it's a no-win situation for us, really, because if you win by 20 points, you're expected. But if you lose or if you win by a couple of points, it was like, why didn't you beat them by 20 points? So uh, it's a really tough one. And also, you know, we flew over on Thursday and just trying to get the body acclimatized to being over here and uh, playing on the pitch. Like, I, I don't think if there was a championship game scheduled to be on an AstroTurf pitch that's laid 10 years ago, um, I, I don't think it would go ahead. So there's a, there's a lot of different variables in the mix there. And uh, in fairness, we, we did prepare meticulously uh, uh, to the lads. Like, we could have been playing Mayo or Galway or any other team in the, in the country there yesterday because we prepared to the best that we could. And I think that showed in the end. Just on that, what you call a media campaign there, Charlie, surely that's good news for you guys. And it was in advance of the game. It's probably, I would have thought it's better that everybody is talking up your opponents rather than saying, oh yeah, well, Sligo are going to go over and hammer them by 20 points. Sure, you know, what's the point? Yeah, it's a difficult one because you're, you're there, you're going over. The New York County Board put on a round of club championship last weekend uh, to facilitate players that, uh, play this week, uh, this weekend. So you don't know who's going to be in the squad. You don't know what really system that they're playing. We knew that they played Donegal uh, two, three weeks ago, and we we had uh, people obviously looking at that game. Not sure if we could take much out of that because Donegal were over on a fundraising trip and all that. But all all the reports back from the Donegal game was that you know that uh, New York played really well and did a strong outfit and they were you know really confident of uh, being able to take us down. But um, 
yeah, it's it's hard to know which if talking us up or talking them up, which is best. But nobody wants to be the first team to be beaten uh, by New York over in New York in the Connacht Senior Football Championship. So that's always a fear there. Uh, you're staying in the US for a, for a couple of days, I believe, uh, like for uh, for a training camp. Is that it? Because the mail game comes around pretty fast. It's in what thirteen days now. Yeah, thirteen days. So we, obviously we didn't look past New York because we had a lot to think about there. Uh, we've a team meeting now this evening. We've a recovery session. Uh, we've two sessions uh, for tomorrow, and then session then a couple of video sessions as well uh, in the following couple of days. So our heads are right on uh, Mayo because, as you said, it's it's only a few days away, and we're going to prepare to the best that we can. And I suppose it's good that we're together because you don't get this opportunity really at home. So with boys working in different counties, like there's there's ten to twelve of us working in Dublin and uh, all over the place as well. So. Uh, it's good that we're together and we'll probably get a lot of work done while we're here. So you're based in Dublin yourself, Charlie, yeah? Yeah, I work in Crow Park, actually. And, of course, um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm National Cool Camp Coordinator, so I look after the Cool Camps nationally. Yeah, so how, do you, how does that work uh, yeah. then, training-wise, during, during the good, say, from January on? How does it work with, that, with so many people based in Dublin? Yeah, well, uh, what we did this season, which really worked, uh, we trained in Abbottstown uh, twice a week on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and then trained in Sligo on a Friday evening. And then depending on the weekend, if we had a match or if we didn't, uh, we had a further training session that weekend. So in previous years, we would have been expected to go down midweek. Thank God, Abbottstown was a great facility to open there. And there's enough of us to have a decent session. So, um, yeah, that's the way it worked this season. You're 35 years of age, I think I'm right in saying now, Charlie. You had a, a cruciate injury a couple yeah, of years. Thanks for that, Ken. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you had a cruciate injury a couple of years back. What keeps you going? Mm. What, what keeps you? I suppose it's it's good that there's a that you can you can train in Dublin. I mean, it would be different maybe if you're up and down to Sligo the whole time. But what uh, what's mm. driving you this season? Uh, just really enjoy playing football at the moment. Um, I suppose when I asked for the cruise sheet, I got back and then three minutes against Roscommon last year, I broke my arm in a couple of places. So I just wanted to give it one last crack and see how I got on. You know, you always want to finish it out and you might have a certain way that you'd like to finish, but it, sometimes it just doesn't work like that. But uh, I played my first full championship game in uh, almost two years. So I'm really happy, really enjoying my football in good shape and, uh, and just enjoying being in that team environment. All right, well, listen, Charlie, best of luck in New York there, and, we'll, and uh, good luck in the rest of the summer as well. Thanks for talking. Okay, thanks, Liz. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. It'd be remiss of me, I believe, not to mention one more little piece of information before. We wrap things up here. Go I saw on. BBC Radio 5 Live. Well, I saw that they tweeted Tyson Fury's voicemail recording today. Okay. This is past your desk at any stage, guys. No. no. He was due on one of their shows, didn't answer, and they thought his message was pretty funny, so they tweeted it out. Have a listen. Hey, this is Tyson Fury's phone, the heavyweight champion of the world. Don't leave me a message because I won't get back to you. Just sit back and enjoy the music. You're my always and forever. You're the one that Please leave your message after the tone. <laughs> to re-record your message, 
So there you go. But that got us thinking. Mm. We've got something a lot better yes. than that in the archives. I Much think, do you better. Know, do you know what I'm thinking of? I think I know what you're talking you about. You might have an idea. Well, what sport is the person that you're thinking uh, of? Boxing. Owned. Correct, Ken. Boxing. He's not just a boxer, though, Ken. He's an icon. Mm. Bigger the than the legends. Bigger than the legends. It's Bernard the Executioner, B-Hop. Bigger than the legends, the alien Hopkins. Former middle and light middleweight, cha- light heavyweight champion of the world. And this is how you play it cool on your voicemail message. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. You know what to do. Is not available. Repage <laughs> this person. Oh, so close to being shit cool, uh, yeah. Just you got to listen back to make sure it fits in. Yeah, it all, the whole it's narrative fits in. Because otherwise it just sounds just a bit weird. A bit <laughs> you know what to do. <laughs> great great B-Hop impression. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Thank, thank you, you Ken. I'm just going to have to shave 4% off my 10k time. I wonder how we'll do that. Thanks, guys. You know what to do. Is not available. I'm a South Pole killer. I repeat what I just said. I am a South Pole killer. Let's keep it real. Oh, Mary Poppins, she was a very, very, very powerful lady. If you know the story about Mary Poppins. If you know the history of Mary Poppins, which was one of my favorite bedtime stories when I was small, she was a powerful lady. She had magical powers with that umbrella. Come April 19th, I'm going to be glad that I was called Mary Poppins. The history of Mary Poppins is nothing to laugh about. With the face, pajamas live in effect, and I don't waste time on the mic with a dope rhyme. Jump to the rhythm, jump, jump to the rhythm, jump. And I'm here to combine beats and lyrics to make you shake your pants, take a chance. Come on and dance, God. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.